Bonsoir à tous et bienvenue sur le podcast Book and Film Globe. Je suis votre hôte, Neil Pollock, le plus grand écrivain américain vivant et l'éditeur de Book and Film Globe, www.bookandfilmglobe.com. Why am I speaking French, you might wonder? Well, it's because this week we're going to talk about the recent Nobel Prize in Literature winner, Annie Ernaux. Michael Washburn will be here to talk to me about that in just a minute. We're also going to talk to Omar Gayaga about the new South Korean uh, mystery romance movie from Park Chan-wook, Decision to Leave. And Sarah Stewart's going to be here to talk to me about Ticket to Paradise, the new romantic comedy starring Julia Roberts and George Clooney, as well as Black Adam, the Dwayne The Rock Johnson superhero movie that has opened this weekend. Stay tuned for lots of exciting content. We'll be right back after these massages. seemed like Elman Rushdie was the odds-on favorite to win the Nobel Prize in Literature this year. Not only does he have the body of work to justify giving him the prize, but he was also stabbed in an incident during a talk in New York State, and he was uh, pretty widely considered to be the guy who was going to get the prize this year. But it didn't happen, and instead the Nobel Prize Committee went with the French writer Annie Ernaux who uh, was not familiar to a lot of people in the States, although lovers of literature certainly were aware of her work. And she was on a lot of people's shortlists to win the prize. And after she did win the prize, I thought, well, who among Book and Film Globe contributors would be familiar with the work of Annie or no? And my, my thoughts immediately turned to Michael Washburn, who is here talking about her work. Hello, Michael. Hi, Neil. Hi. Yeah. So you wrote a piece for us about Annie Arnault and you had, you know, you had, you didn't say that she was unworthy of winning the Nobel. I mean, she, she, uh, has a distinct body of work and she is a great writer, uh, but you had some criticisms about the selection nonetheless. I had a nuanced reaction to the Nobel committee's decision. Annie Arnault's novels are quite entertaining and well-written. I have really enjoyed them. I think she's a fine writer. But for those of us who are well-read in modern French literature, the question may arise of what she has really done to break new ground in a larger sense of the possibilities of the novel. And I'll explain where I'm coming from here. Annie Ernaux writes in a very similar vein to Francois Sagan, who was the author of the celebrated 1954 novel Bonjour Tristesse, Hello Sadness. That is a very beloved work. And the narrator of that novel is a French girl whose father has an affair with a woman and things turn out tragically. Francois Sagan is synonymous with a certain kind of sensibility, romantic, whimsical, bittersweet, tragicomic. Her characters have affairs and fall in and out of love and they test the boundaries of what is considered socially acceptable. So there is this significant precedent for this kind of writing. And as you said, not everyone, particularly in America, is very familiar with Ernaux, and not everybody who reads her work will see the parallel. But to my mind, Ernaux goes over much of the same ground. You might also note, as I did in my piece, that her novels tend to be quite short, which is not a fault, and it's not the same thing as insubstantial. And some of the greatest books ever written 
are quite short. Conrad's Heart of Darkness is is uh, it's a novella, but it is worth asking whether she has made the same investment as some of the writers whom the Nobel Committee has consistently passed over. Well, there's the thing, you know, there are a lot of times I associate the Nobel Prize with writers who are sort of like the um, the chronicler of their place and time, right? I mean, obviously, most famously, uh, Gabriel Garcia Marquez, but you also have last year's winner, um, Gurna from Tanzania, uh, Derek Walcott, et cetera, et cetera. You know, writers who are sort of representative of their region or their country. And, you know, Ernaud doesn't have that for France, right? She's more of a personal writer. She, for, again, I haven't read her work, so I'm, I, I'm not going to pass judgment, but the way you describe it, it sounds more similar to the work of Elena Ferrante, who is more popular in the States as, as some, in translation. I don't even know how many of Ernaud's works have been translated into English. I think that Ernaud has a distinctly French sensibility, and in that respect, she is a chronicler of her time and place, but I wonder what she tells us about France and French society that we don't know already or that we haven't seen before in a lot of acclaimed novels. And as I also mentioned in my piece, sometimes passages in Ernaud, they read like notes for a longer work. She raises narrative possibilities and doesn't really pursue them. And a number of the characters and situations in her novels feel interchangeable. So I feel like she's going over a lot of the same ground. She's telling the same story over and over. And I think she's a fine writer. I'm just not sure that if, I, if it were up to me, she would have been at the very top of my list. I, th I think that these things are very subjective, and it often comes down to what you are looking for in a literary experience, what you want from a novel. And for some people, Ernaud delivers some of the best writing they're ever going to find in, in a whole lifetime of reading. And I think she is, she really is a wonderful writer. I'm just not sure that she would have been my first choice. I've seen people say that, you know, among French writers, someone like Michel Houlebecq uh, should have received the Nobel. I mean, he's never going to get that prize because the Nobel Prize tends to go towards writers with, uh, a leftward or liberal or at least a politically neutral bent and Hulebeck does not um, fit in neatly into in any of those categories. To say the very least, he is a writer who infuriates a lot of people and he had to live in Ireland for quite some time because he was convicted of incitement to racial hatred and free speech does not have quite the same status in France that it does here, although we are heading in that direction. So you're quite right. I think it is unlikely that he will win the Nobel Prize, even though I think he is a really outstanding novelist and not just novelist. He is a critic and he is a, an accomplished poet. And he published this really interesting book about H.P. Lovecraft. And you can see why Welbeck likes Lovecraft. They have themes in common. And off the top of my head, I can name a number of other writers in France who are very meritorious, Emmanuel Carrère, Joel Egloff, Jerome Garcin, Christophe Bataille. These are writers who I think definitely should be contenders, but I just don't know that they jibe with the Nobel Committee's sensibilities. And I think that for one reason or another, they're just, they're not competitive. And, and that's a shame because they're, they really are fine writers. I could go on about 
Carrera, I don't know if you've read Harper's Magazine lately, but he's doing this really hard-hitting journalism from Russia about everything that's going on. And that comes on the heels of a very accomplished career, turning out some wonderful novels like La Classe de Neige and this book about Jean-Claude Roman, who was a doctor in France who went crazy and murdered his family. Uh, it's called L'Adversaire. And he, he's a, a wonderful writer, but I just don't know that he's on the Nobel Committee's radar. All right, let's double back to Annie or no here. If uh, people had to read one or two of her books, what would you recommend? I would recommend Passion Sap, and I would recommend L'Occupation. And these are really entertaining books. And as I said before, sometimes the themes and subject matter overlap, but they're about jilted lovers and jealousy and romantic rivalry and animosity and all the possibilities that these characters' psychological states raise and sometimes realize. Sounds very French. Uh, for those of us who don't necessarily read in French, are they available in translation? Oh, yes, they are. Yes, they are. They're easy to find. Okay. Michael Washburn, a tout à l'heure, as they say. Uh, thank you so much for, uh, for talking to us about this, and we will talk to you next time. À la prochaine. Have a great day. One of the year's biggest art house darlings uh, in movie terms is Decision to Leave, a new romantic thriller from Korean director Park Chan-wook. And Omar Gayaga wrote about it in, on the site this week, and I uh, went to see that movie uh, last night as we're talking, and Omar is here to talk to me about it. Hello. Hi. Uh, yes. Hello. Yeah. Yes. So, so you liked Decision to Leave uh, a lot, as did I. Uh, you know, I felt like this this is a, uh, a terrific, I guess you could call it a kind of a noir throwback movie. It reminded me a lot of classic Hitchcock or uh, classic film noir. It has you know, a lot of the very similar elements to the, those movies. With a, with a lot more cell phones, a lot more smartphones. Yeah, as I was going to mention that actually. There, well, and, you know, you were sort of a techno, techno, uh, technological a technology expert and uh you know there's just a lot of use of cell phone intrigue in this movie that they play a huge role a bigger role than i've seen in any movie and, and a more accurate one at that yeah i i uh, i'm always curious how you know text conversations and and you know uh cell phone technology is going to be portrayed in films and this one does it in a lot of really smart ways i mean not just the display of what people are texting each other and, and at crucial moments. Um, but just there's a, there's a very interesting um, crime scene deconstruction that, that all where the cell phone does play a part in that um, in, in the, the main death uh, that, that the uh, protagonist who's a police inspector is trying to solve. And I just thought that whole sequence was just really smart, really visually dynamic, really cool use of, overlays and special effects, but not in a way that felt like, oh, look at us, we're trying to, you know, do something. It just very organic to what was being presented and just kind of, but also kind of whiz-bangy in a way that's like, oh, wow, I wouldn't expect to see something like that. Almost like the... um the, the sequence in Fight Club with with all of the uh, the IKEA, you know, catalog things, you know, floating around, like to, on that level, which I thought, oh, yeah, that's really smart and interesting. But there's not a lot of cute, corny emojis flying around. They're literally no. <laughs> using data on cell phones. And I think they do it multiple times in the film, really. 
They're using data on various cell phones and tracking devices to uh, sort of reconstruct um, a crime scene and the comings and goings of various characters. You know, there are burner phones involved. There are sort of mistaken phone identity problems. And it's, sure. it's really clever in that way. And you know, I agree with you. You know, on top of all that, you know, this is a kind of a classic film noir about a detective who becomes involved with, you can't really call her anything but a femme fatale. I mean, she's, that's literally her role sure. in the movie. And, uh, you know, she, she drives the entire plot. She's this beautiful and extremely troubled woman who uh, destroys this guy's life, essentially. I mean, <laughs> you, could, you could see it that way. Or maybe he destroyed it himself. He has some agency in all this. Yes, uh, yes. But just the fact that he stumbled. But his life becomes destroyed. <laughs> when I, he, when he I would argue that he has some issues before any of this even begins. He's already kind of living a separate life from his wife. You know, he works in town when he's, you know, investigating, doing his job, and then he's with his wife on the weekends. And it seems idyllic, but uh, I, I'm of the mind that, like, you know, nothing like this, like what happens to him happens to someone without their, uh, their wanting that to happen, in my view. It, it's, it's, about an, it's about an affair, basically. It's about an affair. And I don't, I don't disagree with you, but, but the story is what the story is. And basically, yes. he, he, he stumbles upon a murder and the wife is involved somehow in the murder. We don't know exactly in what, in what way. Or and accident. We, 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 it's presented as it's an accident, but kind of fishy, kind of suspicious. I, I still can, you know, by the end of the movie, I still wasn't entirely sure, which is kind sure. of one of the strengths uh, of the film. But she's involved and then he becomes kind of enmeshed in her life. And she, you know, she becomes enmeshed in his, and it's kind of hard to say who's driving the action. Uh, and there's also like, but so there's that, and then you know, there are also like some very interesting side characters. I felt like his wife was kind of this kind of funny mm-hmm. new age health nut who works in a nuclear power plant. Um, and then, <laughs> then he has a series of uh, kind of amusing um, partners. You know, he has this one drunk guy who's. He's always who's very out of shape and smokes too much, um, but is young and then and, and seemingly fit. And then he has a sort of a his female partner in the second half of the movie. Uh, I mean, is kind of gender ambiguous and really eager to solve crimes. And she also thought, or they were all, I also thought were was very funny and add, yeah, add, add some color and spice to um, a movie that you know could be turgid there, there's even a moment that, that got me really early on uh, where the woman who uh the main female character is caretaking an, an older woman you know with the cell phone uh, again another moment where technology comes into play that, that there's a favorite song that, can, that kind of is running through the movie that is played off of that cell phone um and the, and the cell phone becomes critical in in, in the, the solving of the crime uh but even that character even this this elderly woman who's on screen for all of you know a minute um you feel like she has some life and personality and character, like even that minor character to that level of the minor characters, you know, are, are, it, it feels well populated with real characters, not, not just uh, types. Yeah. You know, compared with the genre trash that we're going to talk about uh, with Sarah Stewart a little bit, later, <laughs> um, just to tease you a little bit, uh, this movie is, everything is very specific and very meticulously Place the script is extremely detailed and um, you know full of clues that don't t- turn out to not be clues, and also full of great character moments. I also felt like it was beautifully and brilliantly directed. 
by Park Chan-wook. He does some very, very tricky things with the cell phone technology. You, you see the detectives are listening to a conversation on the phone, and then it appears like he's in the room observing the conversation. Yes, yes. There's also this, all this interesting stuff having to do with like eyes and vision. Like he's always putting in eye drops, but you see certain shots are like from the, you see shots from the point of view of a, of a dead eye a couple yes. of times. And yes. there's even a shot that shows you um, the scene from the eye of a fish, of a dead fish in a market. <laughs> yeah, that's right. There's well, a lot of interesting transitions and a lot of yes. interesting visual motifs. I think that you're, you feel like from the first shot, I mean, I, I'm in my seat at, at Fantastic Fest watching this. And I felt like from the first, you know, minute or two, I was in because, like, I felt like I was in the hands of a master filmmaker that was just yes. really dazzling me with 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 this filmmaking, but not in any way that that felt obtrusive or felt like showing off. It felt like it all germane to the story, all germane to to this puzzle that we're seeing. And and really, where I thought it it mattered the most was that at the core of the film is just this obsessive love story. This guy is just falling for this woman that he shouldn't be falling in love with, you know, in, in noir fashion, but the detail in that, the, the, the moments and the texting and the anticipation, like it really draws you in to that. And, you know, I thought, well, wow, this guy really fell for this woman quickly, but it, but the detail is there to justify it, that they it really pulls it along. Um, you know, she's not just some random woman that he decides to, to, to become obsessed with. Like she, there's a lot of mystery to her. And I think that's part of the attraction is yeah. he is uncertain of, did she do this? Is, is she responsible for this, this death of her husband or, or not? Can I, can I exonerate her? Right. And then he starts to almost not care because he's so yeah. into her. And, you know, and so the, the movie that, uh, Park Chan-wook said he drew from the most, I saw this at the Alamo Draft House and they had one of their excellent pre-shows. He talked about uh, Brief Encounter, this film by David Lean, which I'm not familiar with. Um, but there are other movies that he had a lot of correlations uh, with. You know, obviously Vertigo, Alfred Hitchcock's Vertigo is the most uh, is the most you know evident and direct uh, antecedent to this movie, and they have a lot. Those, those movies have a lot in common, but it also has elements of classic noir like Double Indemnity or um, sort of modern noirs uh, from the '80s. You know, movies that I used to enjoy like Body Heat or Sea of Love, you know, so, sure. I mean, this perhaps, um, you know, this is maybe a little more art housey than those, but, but th this is a, the kind of movie that we haven't seen a lot of in recent years. And, you know, it kind of takes a, um, a Korean director, as it often seems to do this day, these days to, to, to reinvigorate what, what felt like a tired genre. It's it's very mature. It's very deliberate. It it knows what it's doing, um, in in ways that uh, that I think it really kind of pay off. And then, um, you know, I had not I you know of course I'd seen Old Boy, uh, which was one of one of uh, his his previous films. And then The Handmaiden was in two thousand six. And I had not seen The Handmaiden until after I saw this movie. And then when I saw The Handmaiden, I was like, oh wow, this is very different, but just as well crafted. Uh, in terms of the visuals, in terms of the filmmaking, The Handmaiden is a comedy in my mind. It's a it's a sexy sort of capery com you know comedy uh, um, with a lot of sex and violence in it. Um, this feels much more restrained, much more serious, much more uh, adult and and uh, um, but not dull. But not, you know, I, I want to make that clear. This is not something that no, there's I, action. I think, there's action. There are fight scenes. There's chase scenes. There's yeah. there's there's stuff, there's, there's stabbing. It's, it's sexy, but in a very chaste way for much of the movie. Yeah. 
you know, and I, I feel like this has a chance. I don't know. I don't know if it's going to be as much of a, a broad crowd pleaser as, say, Parasite was, but it has a chance, like Parasite did uh, in its year, to sort of c- capture the attention of uh, Western audiences and to possibly garner an Academy Award nomination. I mean, it's Decision to Leave is an extremely good movie. Yeah, if I have any complaint with it, it's that the last third doesn't feel quite as meticulous and as slow burny as the first two thirds, and and you know that's. I'm sure by design, because if it, it could have been a three and a half hour movie, if it really dwelled on some of the details of that last third, yeah. that it, where it kind of jumps ahead a little bit and kind of like skips over some, some detail. It's funny, um, in, the, in the Alamo, uh, the Alamo preceded this movie with a little uh, introduction by, by the director. And he said, you know, this is a long movie, but there are two parts. And the second part, don't worry, isn't as long as the first part. Yeah, it feels. Yeah, there's some important things that it kind of skips over, but I think it, that's by necessity so that it doesn't drag for another half hour or an hour. I mean, there's some some key details that it gets to, but you feel like for you feel a bit disoriented toward the end, where you're like, wait a minute, did I just miss something? What happened here? Um, and it, it does kind of play that out, and, and it probably works even better on a second viewing, where you kind of know what to expect. It uh, does. It kind, of, it kind of warrants a second viewing, and uh, sure. you know, I. It gets a pretty high recommendation from us here at Book and Film Globe. Decision to leave uh, from Park Chung-wook. Hopefully it is playing in a theater near you. And if not, look out for it on streaming. Omar, thanks so much. Thank you. It's a pleasure. We're now leaving the art house realm and entering the mainstream Hollywood movie realm. And to help me talk about the most recent mainstream releases, I've enlisted the services of Rotten Tomatoes approved film critic Sarah Stewart, frequent Book and Film Globe contributor. Hello, Sarah. Hello. Hello. All right. So your movie this week that you got the assignment for was Ticket to Paradise, starring George Clooney and Julia Roberts. So, you know, I I sat through the previews for this a few times, but uh, I've managed to avoid the movie itself. So tell me a little bit about it. Yeah, I, I did ask for this assignment. I realized that. I, I brought this on myself. Um, I, I am a rom-com person. I do not entirely buy into the idea that there are no good rom-coms anymore. But, you know, I, I am almost 50. I, I remember the heyday of Julia Roberts and George Clooney. So I was pretty into this. And um, I can tell you I, I laughed exactly once in its uh, a little over an hour and a half running time. It is 100% unfunny. It seems like uh, if you fed a bunch of information about 90s romantic comedies into a computer and asked it to spit something out, this would be it. It is completely well, soulless. I would say the funniest thing so far that I've seen about the movie was, well, you emailed me and because you were going to go see it and you're like, I'm a little curious as to why it's 140 minutes. And I saw, I'm like, that seems like, a, even by the standards of today's movie, it seems like a little bit long for a, a Julia Roberts towards Clooney rom-com. But you were wrong. It's actually 104 minutes, which is a, a more reasonable. Yes, yes, exactly. It's, I, my theater originally listed it as much longer than it was. So it was not the, the complete dirge that I thought it was going to be. But it still felt almost that long, to be honest. Well, yeah. So well, Clooney and Roberts play like a divorced couple of rich people basically who like jet off for in a first class journey to their daughter's wedding in Bali. Is that, uh, am I correct in this premise? 
so yeah, there are these there are these divorced people. They've been divorced for it seems like almost twenty years. They have this daughter together. Um, she's played by Caitlin Deaver, who is a very talented actress who was in uh, Booksmart. She was in uh, that that series, the um, the rape series. I think Unbelievable is what it was called. Yes. So she's she's quality, but uh, you know underused here. So she's their daughter. She graduates from college and goes off on this three month stint to Bali before um, somehow becoming a lawyer, even though it seems like she's just graduated undergrad. Just one of the many details that are kind of skirted over here. So she meets this seaweed fisherman and falls in love and decides she's going to stay on in Bali and her bickering parents have to reunite and fly first class to Bali to stop the wedding because they don't want her throwing her future away in this very sort of contrived, obnoxious, kind of generic romantic comedy way. You could say that they're trying to kelp her. <laughs> you much. could. Yeah. Perhaps I will. Uh, all right. Well, that, well that, that, that sounds like incredibly lame and, and, and kind of, I mean, I, I don't want to use this term, but I'm going to say kind of classist. It's like, how could she possibly fall in love with a seaweed fisherman? It is. It is. I, and, and it also feels sort of condescending in its inherent premise that if you just get Julia Roberts and George Clooney together on a screen, everything will instantly be magical and funny, uh, which is definitely not true. Um, but I will say, as far as the classism, uh, the one thing the movie has going for it is that it, uh, even though it was actually shot in Australia, not Bali, it enlists some actual Balinese people to play these characters, and uh, they're all pretty well represented. It seems to sort of be respectful enough regarding the culture, and uh, what's really funny is there, there's this whole, you know, wacky, corny setup where they're trying to you know, subterfuge the wedding and nobody believes it for a moment except for their stupid daughter who's going to be a lawyer. All of the people in Bali immediately are onto what's going on. So that's uh, a, a little redemption, I guess. You know, it's it's funny. I don't know if you're familiar with uh, The White Lotus on HBO. Oh, yes. You know, yes, yes. You know there's a show that takes clueless, um, rich American tourists. I mean, admittedly, keeps them in America. It sends them to Hawaii, at least the first season. But I, I thought that show was, was really um, smart and funny about the sort of the culture clash that's created when privileged people enter a, a world that they don't, you know, they don't really belong in. Right. And it just seems like, you know, you know, I, I guess uh, Ticket to Paradise would have been a very different movie if Mike White had written it. Well, it's very funny that you mentioned that because I was just revisiting the trailer and the sort of tropical graphic design in the trailer even sort of directly echoes the, the credits of the White Lotus. And so you can't help thinking of it and you can't help thinking of how kind of sharp and timely the White Lotus was about exactly what you're saying and how this movie feels like this sort of clueless throwback to maybe the early 90s. Right. All right, well, let's take it to paradise. Um, it's going to be, I think, on your uh, streaming services pretty soon to, so it can compare poorly to The White Lotus. Uh, very soon. <laughs> All right, so let's, let's, let's switch gears. My assignment this week was to see Black Adam, which is the new DC comic superhero movie starring The Rock. My son sacrificed his life to save me. 
powers are not a gift, but a curse. Born out of rage. As we're talking, on my screening may ended maybe an hour ago, so Black Adam is is kind of fresh uh, in in my mind. And you asked me well, before we started talking, did you like Black Adam? And you know the answer is no. I mean, I didn't. It wasn't. It's not a good movie. I mean, it's very loud. It's very all the action sequences are are needlessly and endlessly in slow motion. It's kind of dark. I don't necessarily mean tonally, but just in terms of the cinematography. You know, and they just they just introduce lots of characters without giving us any backstory. Um, that said, you know, it's still a superhero movie starring The Rock at the end of the day. You know, he has this like he boy, does he fill the screen. They fill the screen. And it's like he just he's just bulging out of this costume. It's insane. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and they have other and, and, and they have good actors. in it. I mean, Pierce Brosnan gets a lot of screen time as this character called um, Dr. Fate. Uh, who, Dr. Fate, who I understand precedes Dr. Strange in yes. comics lore. Yeah, he's kind of, yeah, he's a, he's a DC comics character from the 1940s. And he has this like, magical golden helmet that allows, he's not a magician, but it allows him to he seize through time and he can manipulate reality. He's, very, he's similar to um, Dr. Strange in a lot of ways. And it also marks the first uh, live action uh, movie appearance of Hawkman, who is, you know, I would consider like a top, you know, he was in the old Super Friends cartoons, you know, he's like a, a top 20, top 20 DC Comics character, Hawkman, but it gives him, I mean, and but he's like, li he lives in, well, first of all, he's played by this actor named Aldous Hodge, who uh, was last seen playing Jim Brown in One Night in Miami. You know, canonically, Hawkman isn't a black guy, but that's, that's not important. What's, what, what is important apparently to this movie is that he lives in this enormous compound in Louisiana and has a spaceship that he flies around. I, none of this, they didn't explain any of this or where he comes from or why he has a suit of Hawk armor or why does he wield this like magical glowing mace? You just have to just assume that that's part of the story. And I just feel like, you know, those are kind of the kinds of things that maybe a movie should take, just take some time to explain. I mean, given the fact that The Rock's character, Black Adam, has seems to have several origin stories. Yeah, so that's Hawkman, and he's there, and there's a lot of him. And Aldous Hodge is pretty good. Again, there's a lot of um, there's a lot of good actors in this film, and they hold the screen pretty well, considering the ludicrous source material. Uh, now. Here's something that's happened because our technology is very strange here and Sarah can no longer hear me talk, but she, I can hear her and she can type questions out for me. And she asks, how's Sarah Shahi? I recently wrote a profile of her and we talked about Middle Eastern representation in this movie. Is that really a thing? You know, to some extent, yes, there are a lot of Middle Eastern actors in the movie. The movie has a almost entirely Middle Eastern setting. Um, but you know, at the end of the day, it does have an anti-colonialist message in some ways, but it all kind of gets lost in the murk of, um, you know, just trying to introduce all these superhero characters and also just trying to create a star vehicle 
for uh, The Rock. You know, there are other better, I think, representations of Middle Eastern. I mean, Moon Knight on Marvel uh, was largely set in Egypt and I think did a great job there. And Ms. Marvel was set partially in Pakistan, which isn't really the Middle East. But again, it, it's taking areas of the world that haven't traditionally gotten a lot of respect from American pop culture and giving it to them. I don't think this movie exactly qualifies because it's, a, it's set in sort of a fictional country and it really spent a lot of time just focusing on The Rock's biceps. She also asks, does the after credit set up a better movie perhaps for The Rock in the next go-around for Black Adam? Funny you should mention that. There is an after credit sequence that was the only part of the movie where I said, awesome. And, you know, it does kind of set the stage and introducing some of these characters set the stage for potentially a better DC movie universe. But we've gotten our hopes up before about DC and our hopes have, have been let down. That said, you know, it's one of those things where, you know, Marvel has all the momentum and DC is considered the sort of the second tier franchise. You know, The Rock is the equivalent of a number one draft pick. They do have him from here on in, and they're clearly going to make him a central figure in the DC Comics universe. So Middle Eastern representation aside, you know, The Rock himself is not Middle Eastern. He's he's Samoan, uh, which is as, as about as far from the Middle East as, as Cleveland is. Um, so, you know, really what this movie is about is representing The Rock and and not much else. Hey, if that's what you like, then uh, Black Adam is uh, an ideal movie for you. I, I said in my review, has The Rock ever made a good movie? Not too many, but he's never made a movie without The Rock in it. All right, Sarah Stewart, thank you, even though you went silent because of internet technologies um, and problems therein. Uh, thank you for talking to me about Ticket to Paradise and letting me rant to you about The Rock in Black Adam. She loves me like a rock. She rocked me like a rock. Alright, thanks Sarah Stewart for talking to me about Ticket to Paradise and Black Adam. Both are in theaters now, as is Decision to Leave. Thanks to Omar Gayaga for talking to me about that terrific new South Korean mystery romance that is playing in our houses. And also thanks to Michael Washburn for stopping in to talk to me about any or no, the recent Nobel Prize winner in literature. I'm Neil Pollock. I'm the editor-in-chief of Book and Film Globe, www.bookandfilmglobe.com. We cover the worlds of books and film and streaming TV and much more. Thanks for listening. We will talk to you soon. Au revoir. You can buy the books discussed on the Book and Film Globe podcast at The Book House, Book and Film Globe's independent bookstore. Go to the Bookhouse Milburn, M-I-L-L-B-U-R-N.com to shop online and support small independent booksellers or visit our actual physical site in Milburn, New Jersey where you can buy books from all the authors featured on The Dark Word and the Book and Film Globe podcasts. TheBookhouseMilburn.com